You're listening to Angus Underground, featuring insight, opinion, and answers to the questions on everyone's mind. Prepare to be educated, entertained, and empowered with insight, news, and conversation with today's newsmakers. From the well-known to the not-so-well-known, raise your flag and join the revolution as your hosts, David, Joe, and Corbin, take you underground. Well, welcome to the disaster otherwise known as Angus Underground. Uh, we've been battling technical issues tonight. I am pleased to announce we have a full roster of hosts. Uh, let's welcome back Jovid and Corbin, who uh, uh, couldn't be with us on the last episode because uh, Joe had Jovid for the uh, 58th time. And I don't know what Corbin's excuse was, but uh, welcome back, guys. David, you're echoing again. I'm totally kidding. You're not. Yeah, I'm going to tell you what. It's, <laughs> it's, it's just going to have to work. So. Wait, you missed two? What were you doing? Me? I was taking, I took my kid to see Santa and then I got thrown under the proverbial bus by David. J- um, Joe, have you not listened to the most recent episode? Haven't made it there yet, David. Oh, for hell's sake. I've listened to, uh, I did listen to Dr. Sean Baker talk about a meat diet with Joe Rogan, a part of that, but that's the only podcast I've listened to in months. Yeah, that bored me to death. Good deal or bad deal? But by looking at the six pages of show prep for this one, we're, we got a new contract with Spotify and we're going to give Rogan <laughs> a run for his money today. <laughs> but unfortunately, uh, unfortunately, since you guys were gone, we slipped from the number one Angus podcast uh, ranking down to, I think, the third. By the way, I want to go on record and I want to I want to file a complaint. This is an official complaint. Have you guys seen on social media? Um, I don't know who does that. Showtimes. Whoever in the hell they are. You guys know who in the hell Showtimes is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're a big deal, David. I They've got I a deal called Best of Barn. Best of Barn, mm-hmm. where you vote on the yeah. top livestock industry podcast. Really? There's five of them up there. I've heard of one. I listen to one occasionally. The other four never heard of them. No offense, mm-hmm. folks. Whoever in the hell you are. But Angus Underground's not listed. So I, I put a challenge out to our, our audience. Hey, this content, <laughs> you're getting what you pay for, which is nothing. But <laughs> uh, throw us a bone here. Throw us a bone. Get us nominated next year, okay? So I'm guessing we didn't win. <laughs> I guess Where not. do you go to accept the awards? Do you go to Oklahoma City or can you do them at Denver? I think it's. I would be willing to bet they would do the same thing at Denver. Well, they should. They should because maybe we're just waiting on that. They're waiting on that release. It's with the National Western Female Catalog, Corbin. So I'm gonna uh, don't go there because that that catalog was late because of Corbin. Corbin was negligent in writing his footnote. I did not write my footnote. He, well, that, duh. That's why we were waiting for this catalog. <laughs> okay. So don't worry. That was Raptor Five M Angus. I don't. I've never heard of them. I'm Raptor Five M Landing Cattle. <laughs> for, for some I'm of us, we had our footnote in two months ago, and I call in and I said, "Where in the hell's this catalog?" And they're so, "Well, we're waiting on Corbin." You know, um, I took pictures yesterday 
and I I took another photo. Fo- I took a, I retook a photo of that donor. Do you think we could still get that in? There might still be time. Probably. There may be. There may be. So, yeah, our audience is really confused right now because so we're taping this on the fifth of January. Uh, it will air on the twelfth, uh, which National Western and the Foundation sale will be well underway by that point in time. But uh, no, looking forward. Hey, if you're hearing this next Friday, which is the 12th, come by and see us. There's still time to bid on embryos, too, by the way. (laughs) Yes, yes, the embryo sales (laughs) on Saturday. But you come by on the 12th, look for the the huge Montana Ranch slash Angus Underground booth slash display. We are going to be recording. Angus Underground, all week, all week. So if you're standing outside our tent, there's a pretty good chance I'm going to grab you, pull you into the tent, and we're going to put you on the air. But uh, hey, with that, so Corbin, you were talking about taking cell pictures yesterday. How did that go? I have a new worst thing I've ever done. <laughs> what was the previous? The previous was putting embryos in. No, I'm kidding. It's not that bad. Um, you must not freeze brand. Do you freeze brand? Oh yeah, freeze branded does suck too. But it's it's not near as bad as those filthy sons of guns just pacing all over the picture pin. It's like, hey, this is ridiculous. So I had two. I had hay bales set up around in a circle, and I'm telling you what. I don't know. There there was not a hole there. By the end of the day, there was a hole. Then they had all found it. And they were all getting <laughs> lodged in between the hay bales. In fact, one of the bulls, he paced around that pen for so long. I mean, bless his heart, he wasn't he wasn't wild. He was just wanted the hell out of there. He goes and runs and jumps in between these two hay bales and just stucks there. Like like he, he <laughs> runs and just comes off all four feet and just like he's just like screw it. I'd rather die and just goes <laughs> right into the hay bales. What lot number, Corbin? <laughs> lot number. Lot number 38. 38. Okay, yeah, that's good. <laughs> so, yeah, it sounds like a good idea. I mean, those those hay bales, we've all seen them in the backgrounds of pictures. They're beautiful. Except they're they're better on the other side of the fence. Yeah. Lesson learned. Also, I, if I could go if I could go rebuild the fence and make it shorter, that would help too. But I I'm telling y'all, that we got as much done as what I had no idea when we've talked pictures before. I had no idea it was that freaking miserable. That is miserable. It's uh, hey, did you did you look at your phone and see how far you walked? I did not have time to look at my phone. I did not look at my phone one time. When you got home, it tracks how many steps you took. Uh, I I I I got home. At, well, the Bulls actually got out, too, after that, and I had to catch him and sort him. I walked in the door with Mila at 7 o'clock, and I don't think I blinked again. I was toast. <laughs> I, was, I was past smooth out. The only thing I said after after pictures was, hey, did I ever mention how horrible taking pictures was today? <laughs> I'm telling you, my legs hurt. My feet hurt. Those Bulls, they... They didn't know anything different. I mean, they just went right back to living life. It's so insane. It's so insane that that's the industry standard. 
Like we have videos now. Why the flip are we still taking these pictures? <laughs> well, ask Joe. Joe doesn't take pictures. I quit last year. Yeah. Joe values his mental health. Yeah, no, it was so <laughs> peaceful. It was good. It was good. But you need good support pictures if you're going to do that and a good, yes. and a good plan. You have to right. have a plan. And ultimately, something needs pictured. I mean, that's yes. the other piece. Like some of these reference sires and stuff, you can't go year on year on year. You got to decide what you want in your book. And you're just starting out with a sale and trying to establish a customer base. You got to gotta have something. Yeah. Why, why would people... Why would people come and check you out if you have nothing worth seeing? I mean, that's, I don't know. It's tough. It's miserable. You're right. You're right. And especially, it'll get better as you continue to build a relationship with the person you take pictures with if he'll come back to your place again. But (laughs) I mean, part of it, part of it's just like, it's just like a dance. It's like, it's like working together with a dance partner. I mean, it's, it's. It is pretty involved. It is pretty involved. And by the looks of things on social media, most people don't know how involved it is. So Eric Smith took our pictures. And I have to say, he's not without personality, but that is one of the most patient people on the planet. I don't even think, I don't even think it was anything to him. I don't think it was like a big deal. I think he was just like a, a normal day at the office. I really do. David, don't you wish he could have had Fred Stivers to help him? David mentioned that that to me on the phone. <laughs> I did call Corbin yesterday afterward, and, and I I recounted some of the stories, horror stories that I had from working with Fred Stivers, and that was not the most patient human being. No. In, in fact, I, I I would list myself as being extremely impatient. I would I would have the patience of a saint compared to that guy. Absolutely. Uh, by by the end of the day, he will have insulted every one of the crew insulted every animal that came through there, uh, chased a few through the fence. <laughs> it was it was truly stressful. So you have to really be good at your job to be that much of an asshole, right? I don't know that he was that he was that good. I say that every day. Well Vince just said he wasn't even good. People still say, say, well that. you're just an asshole. I said no I'm good at my job. Okay. I've been called an asshole once or twice. <laughs> I try. I try to avoid that label, but call me crazy. Of those in, of us in the picture pen, I can validate that I was the most impatient, and I was definitely the most of an asshole to yeah. anyone there. But I didn't say anything hateful to anyone there. Maybe the bulls. Then you're not doing. You're not doing it right. Then good help makes it all the difference. Yes, if you've got a. 20 people or four people in there that have never done it before and don't know what they're doing. It makes for a long, long day. Indeed. There's a difference. There's a difference between seeing it done and then doing it too. Yeah. You Mm -hmm. see so many people like start with the shavings, right? And they like sprinkle it in front of a bull's head. And then you get one, just saunter in and somebody gets heavy with a flag. And it's like, I don't know. it takes some time. It gets to learn the livestock, learn the people, learn the facility. It's uh, it's a challenge. And each one of those bulls reacts differently to every little different sound. Absolutely. Too. Absolutely, did, they do. Like, did you have an umbrella? I broke it. <laughs> After bulls about two love minutes. umbrellas. I'll tell you what, that umbrella will get a good picture out of one, but, I mean, some don't take much umbrella in. I also, at one point, this bull would not lift his head up. I climbed up on top of those hay bales, and boy, he threw that head up to look at me. I was like, I got you, sucker. It was nice. 
Then you go, that looked killer. And then you realize uh, that was too much cowbell. And now yeah, yeah. that was no good. Like, hey, lay down on the hay bale. Okay. Well, next time I'll lay down on top of the hay bale. Crawl around the straw. Move at them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I can't wait to see those photos, Corbin. But I'm going to keep the ball rolling here because we've got a very special episode, um, much anticipated. If you've been following Angus Underground on social media, you've seen that we've been teasing this episode for uh, several weeks. And I went out on a limb and I, I called it something I shouldn't have. I called it all things repro. Little did I know when I, when I started digging into all the questions that we received from the audience, we can't cover all things repro and, and do this in a timely manner. And given our guests, expertise in the field of embryo transfer and uh, in vitro fertilization <laughs> we're going to try to limit it mostly to those fields uh we'll if, if time allows we'll jump in and we'll talk about some general repro questions but uh, uh with that before we get started before we introduce this what i call a celebrity guest i want to leave you with a uh this is an anecdote that has been recited many times throughout our industry. We've all heard it. And it reads, reproduction is five times more important to profit than any other trait. I don't know how you measure that, but uh, I would tend to uh, say that it's extremely important. I'm not supposed to interrupt during during our interview, so I'll just interrupt now. Wouldn't you say that this is where we receive, other than mate my donor for me, we receive more questions on repro than anything else? Yeah, yes. yeah, for sure. Yeah, more listener interaction, more listener feedback, more diversity of questions, more intriguing questions, questions that I would like to know the answer to, that I'm pretty excited about. I'm pretty excited about. So thank you, David, for putting together a good timeline. And thank you to our guest. I'm excited to hear what you have to say. Well, let's bring him on in. So uh, without any further ado, let's welcome in Dr. Tim Gibbs of Transova Genetics. Welcome to the underground, Tim. Yeah, thanks for having me, David. Appreciate the invite. Uh, excited to dig into these topics with you here a little bit. Well, I've got I've gotten to know uh, you, Tim, over uh, the last couple of years. Uh, certainly been a lot of fun getting to know you. You're a fellow Montanan, which I have a distinct appreciation for, and uh, you've been a wealth of knowledge and and certainly a great assistance to uh, us here at Montana Ranch on furthering our genetics program. Tim, before we get into the meat of this episode, I want to find out about Tim. Now, I know you're over in eastern Montana. That's a world away for us. But but tell us uh, tell us about what where you live now, what you do. What did you do growing up? Just lay it out there, Tim. Yeah, sure. So I guess I'll start with uh, what my current role is, uh, professional services veterinarian for Transova Genetics, like you said. Um, been with them for about five and a half years, I suppose. And uh, before that, I was a uh, in private practice, uh, primarily dairy practice out in uh, Washington State. So I graduated vet school from WSU in uh, 2013. And how I got there would be you know, grew up on a commercial cow-calf operation um, in eastern Montana, where I currently still live. And, uh, I mean, very out here, they're 
they're big places. They're not necessarily very productive places. You know, we're kind of on the edge where there's some farm ground, but it's just big open country. You know, it takes us 40 to 50 acres um, per cow. So a lot of range, um, you know, not great hay ground, uh, a lot of droughty years. So just kind of grew up in a very standard eastern Montana ranch setting with uh, three brothers. So so you, you mentioned droughty years. I thought that mm-hmm. was every year in eastern Montana. No, we have a good one every once in a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, Tim, I'm, I'm going to kind of give you free reign. This is not something we generally give to our guests. But I wanted to start with, so we, we've got a wide variety of listeners. We've got those that have been in this their entire life you know, in the uh, breeding cattle business. And then we've had others that are relatively new. And so I thought, let's establish just some general terms because you're, you're going to talk in, in these terms throughout this episode, but let's talk about it. I mean, you're, you're going to use the term uh, CL. You're going to use the term follicle. So share with us just some general terms so that we can follow along a little closer. Yeah, sure. Um, and before that, David, uh, I'd like to take a little step back. I'd be uh, remiss if I didn't mention uh, that I'm married to my beautiful wife, Abby, and I got two little girls. And the nature of the work that I'm in, the amount of travel that's required, you know, the the country that I'm covering, none of it would be possible if I didn't have a great wife at home that was um, taking care of things there. So very uh, thankful and, and lucky to have her. And it's yeah. uh, what makes it all worth it. So just want to make sure I get that in. How old are your little girls? Uh, five and eight. So they're oh, very man. fun ages right now. Back yeah. to the, the eight-year-old just came home uh, this evening, all pumped up about her 4-H meeting. They did BQA, and uh, she was the lucky <laughs> one that got the cupcake with the abscess in it, so it was full of pudding. Nice. So she, <laughs> they're not like that, but so she was all fired up. But yeah. But yeah, so anyway, David, to answer your question, um, yeah, so CL would be just, uh, it stands for corpus luteum. So that's just uh, Latin for, I think, uh, a yellow body, um, which nobody really cares. But what it, what it means is that is where the cow ovulated. And when, when she went through the act of ovulation, that CL was formed. And that's very important because it has, the CL has one job on an ovary, and that's to produce progesterone. And progesterone is one of our most important hormones as we talk about manipulating the estrus cycle. And so I don't want to really get too far into the weeds on going through the whole estrus cycle. You know, that kind of what undergrad uh, basic physiology classes were for. But uh, I think you can all think back to that little 21-day cycle with two to three follicular waves and um, all the different hormones that are involved in that. And follicle was another uh, term that you mentioned. And a follicle is just a a fluid-filled sac, again, on the ovary. And the important thing for my line of work is that each follicle is going to contain uh, one um, oocyte in, inside of it. So when we're talking about going into IVF, that's what I'm doing is I'm targeting those fluid-filled follicles and trying to aspirate each oocyte out of those off of the ovary. Um, I don't know. Did you have any other terms that you were oh, kind of wanting geez. me to? We'll just stop you. If, if there's something that we think uh, needs a little more light shined on it. Tim, can you repeat that? I didn't. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> no. 
so so this is all just fascinating stuff. Um, I I had the pleasure. This is the old guy in me coming. Out. I had the pleasure many years ago working with a guy by the name of Dr. Bill Beal from Virginia Tech, who uh, was one of the great reproductive physiologists back in the nineties. And yeah, he's the one that taught me all these things. But uh, so let's let's do this, Tim. Okay, seriously. I mean, we ha- we have audience out there that don't know the difference between conventional embryo transfer and and really what you're specializing in, which is IVF, in vitro fertilization. Can can you just give us a, a real basic outline of those? Yeah, I think that's a, a great place to start, really. So when we're talking uh, conventional flushing, that's a tried and true technology that's been around since the, you know, at least the 70s and been commercially viable since probably late 70s, early 80s, right? And so... If I can describe that as simple as possible, we've we've got a, a donor cow that we want to you know get more um, embryos out of. So we're going to give her a series of you know hormonal injections in order to manipulate her estrus cycle to uh, super ovulate her. So you know generally a cow is going to ovulate one egg and she's going to drop one egg into the oviduct. That's then you know going to go through the process, get fertilized get one embryo you know occasionally she'll drop two and we can get twins so when we super ovulate that cow we're going to give her uh, most commonly eight injections uh, of follicle stimulating hormone or or fsh so faltropin would be the drug that is commercially available in the u.s that we most commonly use so when we set that cow up to get her we either pre-sink her or force her and go through you know just go through the the steps but we're going to try to get her at the ideal point in her estrus cycle, and then start giving her those injections. And uh, we give those, you know, like say over the course of four days, and then we're going to give her another injection, another couple injections of a drug uh, called the prostaglandin, which uh, your listeners would probably recognize the trade names estromate or lutealize. And then we're going to cause that cow to then ovulate multiple eggs at one time. And so she's going to be dropping, you know, instead of one or two, she's going to be dropping 10, 12, 20, even, you know, 30, 40 of these eggs at at various times, but in a controlled window. And so as she's dropping those, that's when it's going to be important that we're inseminating her a couple times with several units of semen. And then we're going to allow multiple fertilizations to take place within the cow's uterus. So it's very much mimicking what happens naturally. There's just more of it. That's so that's where the superovulation comes from. Uh, yeah, Tim, I was just going to ask a question. So um, I'm a stickler when when it comes to uh, giving those um, FSH shots. Mm-hmm. I mean, to the point, and and this was drilled into my head by my dad, who was doing this back. He was one of those those pioneers in the late '70s, uh, early '80s. About, I mean, we watched the clock on the wall. And we want to space those out exactly 12 hours. And I, I, I know you, you, you want to recommend to all your clients that they, they keep that uh, timing as close as possible. How much leeway is there? Yeah, so th- there is a little leeway. You know, we say a.m., p.m. We, we do like it as close to 12 hours as possible, you know, realizing that um, sometimes, and depending on time of year, that we just might not be able to pull that off. So if you're, you know, if, if that interval ends up being, you know, closer to, say, a, a 10, 14, that's probably just fine. But uh, in general, 
you like it when people are following things as close as they can because one little thing by itself might not matter, but all those little things done perfectly are is, is what makes a difference and and having great success or just average success. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've had a lot of uh, people contact me and they said, you know, we're we're having some problems in our ET program. What can we do? And I always say, Tim, that it's it's a million little things that add up to one big thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't say it better myself. That's that's exactly right. You you can't pinpoint one thing. It's it's all of them additive. Yeah. Yep. What's your what's your thoughts on the time on the breeding? Yeah, sure. So I mean, it depends a little bit if it's the first time we've worked that cow or if it's one that we've struggled with in the past. But if it's the first time, you know, generally a, a twelve and twenty four uh, interval is is appropriate and and fine for most donors. Okay. So so a lot of times these protocols and. Tim, I'm going to get us off into the weeds, and 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 I'm going to kind of lean on you to get us back. But yeah, a lot of these a lot of these protocols, they'll uh, I, I've seen some that say uh, breed at onset of estrus on these donors, and I've seen others say eight hours and then in twelve hour intervals after. Uh, why why the difference? But between uh, you know these technicians, why why the different protocols? Everyone has their own personal bias and, and what's worked uh, for them in the past and uh, and also might be donor specific. So if we have a cow that we've flushed and uh, we got all, you know, UFOs or degenerates, you know, we didn't get viable embryos collected and we worry, you know, did, did we miss timing insemination with ovulation? And so then you might tweak some of those deals a, a little bit. And also, to be honest, going to be dependent um, on the protocol that you've been given. So you can uh add some you do some early estimates if you incorporate this flush schedule with a cedar and so say you might have some cows that are coming into heat a little bit quicker and um and, and some guys might prefer that you say ai four units but you're doing it one at a time over shorter intervals whereas others might prefer you do two units you know 12 hours apart so a lot of this is a, it's it's a blend of, of art and science and everyone's going to be a little bit different and what they think works the best for them and what they think is going to be feasible for the client to pull off. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. Yeah. Let me just wrap up a little bit on the conventional flushing. So just to reiterate for your listeners with the conventional flush, when we're inseminating that donor, we're asking her to then carry those embryos in the uterus and treat that uterus like a little incubator for seven days. And at that point, your technician's going to show up on farm or it can be done at a regional center, you know, how, however it's done and uh, is going to throw some solution in the uterus and suspend those embryos in that solution and then pull it out and then get that contained, you know, into their little tube and then process those embryos. So the cow, the donor cow is doing all the work in making those embryos for us. We just have to collect them and then process them, whether we're going to put them in fresh or freeze them. And, that is going to vary greatly from when we get into IVF. Yeah. So I want to ask a question here, Tim. Tim, and I'm sorry, I've got a, a ton of questions here myself. So we're at day seven. You're going mm -hmm. in to, quote, unquote, flush the embryos out. Are those embryos, are they beginning to attach or are they just free floating in the uterus? Sure. They're, they're free floating. So that's why, you know, th there's a lot of things about the cow's physiology that just lends her to being the perfect candidate to super ovulate and, and collect embryos off of and, and 
really utilize this technology. And that's why it's really impressive um, that we're able to do this at all, right? I mean, compare this to horses and how hard it is to fluff a horse and propagate those genetics. So, so yeah, so no, those embryos, they're, they're free, free floating um, in the uterus, you know, typically in the more um, distal part of the horn. And so that's where, again, it'll depend on technique. But like personally, when I set that catheter, I will set it in the the top half or, you know, the, the, the final third or half of that horn and then seal it off. And, and that's the only part of the uterus that's going to get flushed, you know, when I'm doing it. Other technicians will set that catheter, you know, right by the cervix and go ahead and, and suspend the whole uterus full of fluid. Um, a lot of different ways you can do it. But, uh, but yeah, they're all free floating right there. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. So, so are we ready? Are we ready, Tim, to talk about IVF? Yeah, sure. So, <laughs> so, so IVF, uh, great technology, uh, much newer than conventional flushing, um, but it's become commercially viable here um, in the last, you know, we'll say what, 10, 15, 20 years uh, with varying degrees of, of success. Uh, we've sure come a long ways, but I will say a lot of the questions that I get or uh, app apprehension that I get in regards to IVF comes from maybe the early days of in vitro fertilization and some of the, the challenges um, that, that were had is when we're talking about poor results, poor preg rates, you know, uh, large calf syndrome, you know, things like that. But uh, to describe the process, I guess, for someone that's maybe not as familiar with it, it's a little different than the conventional flushing in that we're just harvesting unfertilized oocytes or eggs from the cow's ovary and then when we take those, we're going to process them and fertilize them in a lab. And then they're going to grow in a series of incubators over that seven days um, in a laboratory type setting, at which point then they'll get frozen or transferred fresh, just like in a conventional embryo. But we're asking the cow to do a lot less. We're just asking her to have some oocytes on her ovaries for us to collect and not making her do all that work for us. That's cool. So, Tim, let's let's talk a little more in depth about IVF. Okay, so we know that the standard operating procedure at Transova is to give those donor cows uh, some follicle stimulating hormone prior to going in and, and aspirating those oocytes. What's the theory there? Sure, and I would say in general. Um, you know, it's, it also, I would say, depends on the situation and the scenario. It, it depends a lot on dairy versus beef, depends on virgin heifers versus mature cows, um, depends a lot on the region, the, the breed of cow. But yeah, for my region, where we are in Montana, mature beef cows is the vast majority of the type of cattle that we're collecting. And so my recommendation is typically to start most of those cows with um, a dose of, of FSH because in general, you're going to maximize your embryo production um, by giving that FSH injection. So that's, that's the thought process, I guess, is, is that in general, you'll, you'll get a little bit better results. But that being said, I have some clients um, that despite my pleas and uh, advice and expertise, will uh, completely ignore it, refuse to give their cows any FSH, and you show up 
and you just want to say, I told you so. And then they make the most embryos they've ever made. So shame maybe, on you them. Tell me, maybe you could tell me a little bit about that, David. I, I tell you what, shame on them. I, I can't believe anybody <laughs> would ignore your instruction. But, uh, so sometimes uh, necessity dictates how things are done. But uh, no, I, I would urge all of our audience, absolutely to follow the instructions of, of whoever your practitioner is. Follow to a T. And that way, if it's a bomb, you can blame it all on them. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but, but no, you know, and I, I can expound on that a little bit too, you know, it, and, and actually right now we're, we're having um, a shortage in FSH. It's very difficult to, uh, to get at the moment because there were some, some issues with, um, somewhere in the manufacturing process. And we currently only have the one drug that's approved for use in the U S. So, uh, we could very well be doing all of our cows. Um, you know, no stim is, is I guess what we say when we're not giving them any drugs, uh, this spring, it's, it's a very real possibility. We have a finite supply right now, so we'll, we'll see how that goes, but, uh, mature beef cows, they tend to do pretty good in general without drugs. And, and a lot of that is because they're going to have um, a nice follicle count, right? So your average beef cow, we'll say Angus, is going to yield you about 25 oocytes that, that we can fertilize and have a chance of making an embryo at. And uh, that's a pretty good number to start with. Now, if you have these cows that give you 6, 8, 10 oocytes, um, you just don't have the number there. So you want every single one of those oocytes to be in the best shape possible to allow it to get fertilized. And so that's kind of where we do like to give the drugs because we're, we're not going to, if, if you give those cows FSH and you saw this David with, with your cattle, we got, you know, I'd say the, the exact same, or maybe even a few more, um, oocytes when we, when we did no stim as compared to when we gave it FSH. Sure. But, uh, but, it, but in general, what you're doing is, is you're allowing those follicles to grow up a little bit and maybe get a little more mature. And we're going to have more viable oocytes that we collect, um, in our system when we give them that FSH injection. What will that do to conception rates? Do you have the data on that? It, you know, the, the most recent data that I saw was that there was no difference in conception rates as far as the whether those embryos were made with FSH or without FSH. Now, where, and, and again, a, a lot of what I'm talking about, David, would be just within our system. And I will say different companies um, produce embryos in different ways. And what might be true for us is not necessarily going to be true for, for another company. But um, where you do see a difference is, I, I can't remember the exact numbers, but there is a slight advantage in stimulated donors as far as grade one versus grade two embryos. And grade one embryos are going to have uh, an advantage in conception rate, you know, we'll say between five and five and seven percentage points. So that's, that's where you might get more pregnancies per donor by giving the drug as if, yeah, with, by maybe driving a slightly higher uh, percentage of grade one embryos. On a lighter note, uh, Tim, I might know a guy that was sitting on an unopened bottle of F FSH what might the street value be of that? <laughs> you know, it depends. You, you make a couple calls. Uh, you you could probably double your money if uh, if things at least if things yeah. get as tight as they're talking. You know, I'd say hey, just hang on, just hang on to it. Didn't they have an issue last year too with it? There, yes, there was. Uh, things got really tight last year as well for I think a different manufacturing reason. But you know, I mean, 
post post COVID, what what hasn't been hard to get a hold of? It doesn't matter what you're talking, right? So it's just the realities of of the world that we live in right now, unfortunately. So Tim, as a as a veterinarian, how do you feel about um unused remaining contents of a bottle? How should that be treated and can it be rethawed later or or don't thaw it and put it in the refrigerator? But if supplies are tight, what should we do when we drop 20 cc's and we're left with five at the end of giving some donor shots? Sure. So I don't think it's necessarily approved uh, for use in this way. I think the official recommendations are that once you've reconstituted it and, uh, you know, had it stored in the fridge and used it all, that it, it should be discarded. But I suppose a guy, if he had some extra and wanted to try it, could uh, just put that in the freezer and it, it would oh. be stable and just fine. And you could thaw it once and then you want to use it again. But uh, so you wouldn't want to go through a couple cycles where you, you pulled it out, thawed it out, then refroze. But um, many people have gotten by very well by just um, freezing, freezing the remainder of those bottles and thawing out one time. So, so, you know, there's certain cows where we've got to give them more FSH. We've got to give this one less and this one more. What, um, what's like a basis baseline for, for a cow that you're, you're IVF and for the first time, I know Transova has a recommendation for a fresh cow or whatever, but, but can you explain kind of why you give whatever amount of FSH? Sure. And again, it will depend a lot on the person I will say on the region, on the cow, and, and really who's aspirating the cow. So I guess I could just speak to my own experience and, and my recommendations. And if we're talking a, and, you know, in a beef cow environment, if I've got a young cow that's um, got a calf inside, thinner body condition, um, I'm typically going to go a really light dose. And, and just in general, I like to go with a really light dose because it's a lot easier to start them light and then walk them up than it is to overstimulate them and, ha and have to back them off. So I typically start everything very light. Um, younger, thinner cows are, are also would, would match the criteria for getting started light. And if I've got a old, uh, high body condition, dry cow that's been worked a ton, um, then she's going to get started on, on the higher end for sure. Uh, but also, um, we'll say like Herefords, you know, Herefords have a a great follicular populations. I mean, the, these cows have very high antral follicle counts, uh, very fertile that way. Herefords, you just need to wave the bottle in front of them, and, and that's good enough. I mean, because it's very easy to overstimulate a Hereford. Angus, you know, even out here, uh, these more maternal type Angus um, can be the same way. You, you got to be really careful about overstimulating them. Now, you get into some of the more, um, I don't know, genomic or, or terminal type Angus, then they, they're kind of harder stimulating. And so those might get um, started a little bit higher. So that's going to be where your tech that you've been working with, they might kind of have a feel for your cattle and, and dose those things accordingly. Does that answer your question? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, David, do you remember the days of the Sioux biochemical when there was different batches? And so you basically gave the same dosage, but different breeds would give different, different. I don't know if Tim, are you that old? I unfortunately am not. David, do you remember this or am I crazy? <laughs> Joe, you're not that old either, Joe. No, but there was a batch that was like the 3092 went for Angus cows, the 3098 we used on shorthorn cows, and it was different potency. But that was almost 30 years ago. Yeah, all I worked with were Angus and Charlay, so I can't speak to shorthorns. Oh, interesting. Sorry to derail <laughs> us. We should probably get to some of these listener questions, though, huh? 
I thought we were going on the Hereford Underground for a moment, but uh, I wouldn't mind that. We got listeners. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we love both there. of you. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> a lot, lot of Herefords in Montana, David. A lot, lot of Herefords. Don't knock them. <laughs> great, great Hereford breeders. There, there absolutely are. Yeah, 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 they're not far from me. But uh, so, so Tim. Um, we're just going to kind of pick through these questions. We have way sure. more questions than we can cover tonight. And I know that we're going to stimulate a, a lot of conversation as we hit on these, but okay. So let's dive into why one may find an advantage of conventional ET versus IVF or vice versa. And I, I think that we can have a lot of discussion there, but so we had two listeners that posted that question, and I'm 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 the third here that that want to talk about that. But uh, Cody Pig, I think he's from down around Vince's way, and then uh, Justin Collette. But let's let's talk about the advantages and disadvantages. Sure, and then I you know I, I'm very most familiar with your program, David. But I'd also like to hear from the other guys um, when we're done, and just kind of get a feel for you know what they're doing and what works for them and what doesn't. But, uh, you know, it, it really does just depend on what your goals are and, and where your program is at. I mean, there is not just a, a cut and dry answer on IVF is going is, is better technology or conventional flushing is better technology. It completely depends on the donors that you have that you want to propagate genetics from, um, whether or not it's important for you to keep them in production or not, because that's a great advantage of the IVF is we can start working those cows 30 days postpartum as opposed to 60, 70 with conventional flush. And then we can get those cows bred on time and then continue to work them every two weeks in IVF while they're pregnant, usually up until about four or five months of pregnancy. Whereas with the conventional flushing, obviously, where we're using her uterus as that incubator, we got to keep that cow open if we want to make embryos off her. And, you know, you're talking doing her every five, six weeks instead of every two weeks. So, if that's important to you, you might go one way versus another. If you got a cow you just want to keep open, conventionally flusher, then that'd be the answer. But for the IVF, a lot of the guys that gravitates towards IVF, that's one of the biggest reasons they do it is the importance of keeping those cows in production. So it works works great for them. Uh, sexed embryos, that'd be another um, reason to maybe go more towards IVF. Uh, I'm not aware of anyone that's consistently had great success. Uh, making sexed conventional flush embryos just the trying to use that seam in, in that setting is just not the best uh, utilization of your time so ivf is, is a great way to get your gender sorted embryos um, a, a lot easier so that might be a consideration now if you just have you know a lot of guys eastern montana even in the dakotas they got two or three cows they want to flush once and they want to do it on farm put those embryos in fresh conception rate is very important to them um, and they want to be done and that's where i would you know tend to go towards more conventional flushing because those are um and that might be something i need to line out a little bit here too is the conception rates you can expect right and so the highest conception rate embryo is going to be a fresh conventional embryo and then you're going to walk down to a frozen conventional embryo and a, and a fresh ivf performing probably very similarly and then below that is where you're going to have your frozen IVF. So again, the guy that just wants to make, we'll say 20 embryos, you got two, three cows, one time on farm, let's go ahead and set those cows up conventionally. But now if somebody has 
a stable of donors and they want to put in, we'll say five to 10 embryos from 20 different donors, we're going to much more easily be able to accomplish that by doing a couple big IVF collection days. Well, you touched on doing it, um, doing a pregnant cow and a lot of questions that I get are, you know, what's the, is that safe? And I, of course I said, well, obviously it is. They, people do it all the time, but what is there? I'm sure there's a percentage of fallout of that, or maybe aborting a pregnancy very low, I'm assuming, or. Sure. So I would say in general, uh, if somebody's talking to me about bringing a, a pregnant donor, mm-hmm. I'd like to see that donor for the first time at least 40 days pregnant. And, and the reason for that is, is that's when you have your highest percentage of early embryonic death or abortion, I guess you could say, anyway, in a cow is, is pre-40 days, just naturally. It has nothing to do with the IVF process. Just naturally, we don't really bank on a pregnancy until at least 40 days. 60 days would be even better. So... I like, so if you want to wait till 60, that would be fine too. But then we feel like that cow is generally pretty safe in calf. And then mm-hmm. at that point, honestly, in my experience, it isn't really any different than spontaneous abortion that you're going to get from time to time anyway. And I think that's true for most, well, for all experienced technicians. And that's where if somebody knows what they're doing, they're reputable, they're going to go in there safely, they're going to isolate that ovary. They're going to use, you know, the ultrasound guided needle and they're going to pick those follicles off without any risk of uh, damage to the pregnancy. So I think if you trust your technician, trust who you're working with, I wouldn't be too worried about it. You know, just the, the stress of moving the cow around is probably going to be as, as much as any or introducing her to a new environment is going to be as, as much as anything on the impact of maybe bumping a calf. But it's just not something... It might happen from time to time, but I, I couldn't tell you when the last time somebody was that they said that they, you know, that they dumped one. It just, it's a very minimal risk in, in, in my mind. Again, as long as thing is it's being done safely. And that super ovulation doesn't, isn't going to do anything either. You're good on FSH. Nope. Just the FSH. I mean, that's, that's very, very safe to give. The only thing you want to do is make sure that you're not, uh, you know, given a setup estimate or anything like that, obviously. But, uh, yeah, I have no no concerns about uh, stimulating a pregnant cow. In fact, a lot of cows will do better under you know when they're pregnant. They're under you know a different hormonal environment, and it, I've had some poor doing donors that just haven't done well for me. And it's been like you know what, let's get her bred and bring her back pregnant and try her, and they've worked better. And uh, it, some cows just seem to prefer that. And if they've got that constant CL and they're under just the constant state of progesterone. Maybe that's calming them down a bit and um, just giving us a, a more uh, fertile oocyte to work with. So I, it's, I, I really, really, that's a, a great advantage of the IVF, in my opinion, is being able to work them cows pregnant. Yeah. So, uh, Vince, I, I know that you're, uh, you've got a, a satellite uh, facility yes. there for Transova at Shady Brook. Yep. So you're doing other folks' cattle there and, and you're doing your own. So what what is your strategy? I know you've you've been heavy into conventional. You've uh, dabbled in IVF. Where are you at, and, and why are you going one direction or another right now? For me, I I have a couple of cows. One specifically, I need to IVF as much as possible. Another one overstimulates quite a bit, like you were talking about, like the Herefords. I mean, the last time we ran her conventional on 
nine cc's and she overstimulated 40. Wow. So, you know, with her and I did her while she was pregnant as well. Um, I just have different, different cows that I think need different things for me. Isn't it kind of a, a shame that it's kind you have to kind of take the financial plunge to even figure out what each cow needs. I mean, it kind of sucks. It does. So one thing that I wanted to ask was, what do you see as the future? Uh, will IVF get better? You know, you were talking a little bit about conception rates. Do you foresee this, the IVF deal getting even better than it is now? Or are we kind of, if we kind of hit a wall with, with the conception rates and is conventional always going to be more, more viable? You know, um, I think that's a gap that uh, we've done a pretty good job on on closing that gap. I think we, we're getting closer all the time. And no, I, I think the best is, is yet to come on uh, on improving that conception rate. I think I think on the conventional embryos, we probably have hit a wall to a certain degree. You know, I was at uh, American Embryo Transfer Association convention this fall, uh, AETA for short, and that's anybody that handles any volume of embryos is for the most part is a member of this uh, association. Um, can't stress enough how valuable it is to us ET practitioners in the U.S. and Canada. But there was an older guy that stood up and said he'd been flushing cows for like 35 years. And he said the averages, he said he was averaging like seven embryos and 60% conception rate then. And he's averaging seven embryos and 60% conception rate now. You know, he just hasn't made much changes. And uh, that's, you know, couldn't be more opposite when it comes to IVF. And I think um, a lot of these bigger companies are devote an incredible amount of uh, resources to, to R&D and, and are working on solving that because that's, you know, it, it's one of my biggest competitors is, you know, is somebody going to conventionally flush that cow versus, versus IVF for me? So it has to be economically viable. And the conception rate is certainly a large part of that. Uh, another thing I would add to that, though, is just how important the reset management is in that final conception rate. I mean, because these, these IVF embryos, they they aren't as hardy as a conventional embryo in general, and so having all those little things done right on your reset management is uh, going to allow you to have some phenomenal preg rates. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to pull some preg rates in frozen IVF that you, you just wouldn't think are possible. I mean, in in the eighties, you know, on on large sets, and those are in herds that they, I mean, they're just they're doing all the little things right, and you don't even know what all of them are to be honest. It's just everything just seems to work, and so. Um, I'm getting more and more of that where we'll put in a, a mix of frozen IVFs and frozen conventionals. And, you know, a, a lot of days there, there's really not that much of a gap between them. So I'm, I'm, I have more confidence all the time in, in the quality of those embryos. And I will say too, on some of these, some of these cows that I've put IVF embryos in frozen or not, it doesn't matter. Some of these cows, they just have stickier embryos. It just doesn't matter what you do. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think more so than on the conventional side. It just seems like, uh, yeah, it, it's very interesting, the difference in matings. And, and a lot of times, if you get into uh, a wreck or some, you know, some disappointing results, you can kind of look back and, and, and see that there were some big matings that just, they just didn't work for whatever reason. That donor did not like that sire and... Those embryos did not want to stick at all. So I, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. It's interesting you say that. We were uh, 
why it's a guy that works with me. And we were talking about that today, actually. We're riding along and, and we were kind of, we've done our early preg check. And so we're dissecting, you know, cattle that worked, cattle that didn't. And I said, you know, we always on our ET results are at 62 to 65%, mostly all conventional. But that doesn't tell the full story. One cow will be like 85 and another cow will be down around 30. And so it's always my goal to keep pulling those 30s out and just let them raise one calf. It's fine. And we keep moving more towards the cows that have the stickier eggs. Sure. And and there's guys that do that. And I, they, it's impressive what you can accomplish if you're uh, managing both for embryo production and, and conception rate, even, even on the donor side, for sure. What What is it, Tim, do you think causes some cows or certain lines of cows to be excellent embryo producers and produce these embryos that are super sick, sticky, that make pregnancies. What is it? You know, I, I wish I had the answer for you on that. It, that would be, uh, that would be great. I, I just, it's, it, it's a mystery, David, as, as far as I know, I, I couldn't tell you. And it's even on, on some of the cows, it's just mating dependent. You know, they might be fine. And then all of a sudden you get into a couple of matings that they just don't seem to work for them. Um, the only thing that I found is the more that you like that donor or the more that you've invested in that donor, the more likely she is to be a cow that doesn't work. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I, I just want to share my experience here. I like to hear myself talk too, but <laughs> we, we were 100% conventional for many years and, uh, we have slowly transitioned to, uh, we're, we're nearly nearly 100% IVF. And, and what triggered that for us, Tim, was I don't like managing open cows. And, and uh, I, I want to make sure that these cows stay right in the production rhythm of the rest of the herd. And I don't like calving year-round. I like calving in one clear, distinct season. Uh, it, it never seemed to fail when whenever we would keep cows open for any extended period of time when we were doing conventional flushing, I stifled a lot of cows because those cows are in heat every 21 days. And it doesn't matter whether it's, uh, you know, a, a nice sunny day, 70 degrees on dry ground or up here in, in the frozen tundra where we've got a lot of ice and snow and, and sub-zero temps. You've got these cows coming in heat every 21 days. And you just, uh, I, I, I wrecked a lot of cows by keeping them open too long, uh, doing the conventional flushing. And, and so we have gone uh, more towards the IVF side. Um, it, it pains me at preg check time that, that we don't have the, the same kind of conception rates that we had before. But I, I think in the longevity of these truly valuable donor cows that we're wanting to propagate, it made sense to keep them in production, uh, keep them bred, and uh, and I I do like the flexibility of uh, a lot of times. You know, we're able to make three, four, five collections on these cows and still get them bred with the rest of the herd. I mean, that's awesome. And I have less cows that are hard to breed back after we do IVF uh, than we had when we conventionally flushed. And and so I I think it uh, I think ultimately you have to determine what your goals are with your herd and what your uh, goals are with your ET program 
and uh, let that be the guiding principle for you. Joe, what uh, I know you've kind of tinkered with both, correct? I haven't done as much IVF as I would like to try um, mm-hmm. because we don't necessarily have, we've got like two or three. Everybody asks, who's your donor? Who's your, we don't have a lot of these resident type donors. We have a lot of cows that we'd like to create more pregnancies or give more opportunities to have influence in our herd. But these lifers that you call them that every 18 months they calve or every, I guess it'd be more than 18, right? It'd be um, every kind of year and a half, they skip a cycle and they get fat and they get stale and all the things you're saying will happen. Um, We just haven't, I I haven't prioritized figuring out that that piece for us. Um, I would say this spring, we probably will with some cows um just to but we aren't in a situation where we can use them fresh so we'd have to freeze them and then we'd have to take that little bit of a a conception rate hit but um yeah i I definitely would like to do that and i'll tell you the other thing i'd like i'd like to not be given shots like i do to be honest with you it is it is just absolutely painstaking And, and to go back to what tim was saying about the 12 and 12 We've amended that a little bit for our scenario, but one thing I'll say about it is when you say 12 and 12, inevitably you will be late and you'll screw up. And so the closer you are to being right, the better. And and I try to be 11 and 13, and I can go into that some other time off air with you guys in the summer especially. But um, yeah, I, I've done both, but we've kind of, because we don't have that stable of resident donors, we just find the ones that work conventionally. And then the ones that don't, we just make AI cows. And and when I say work, they've got to kind of produce more than eight, I would say for us, if they can't produce eight, they can kind of have that same production by just having a natural calf, at least for the financial feasibility for us. We don't have a good market selling females. We don't, we don't do that. And so it doesn't really make sense. You, you have the market for it. You just don't want to exploit it because you're a horse. There's part of that. Yeah. Yeah. There, there is part of that. But we have flushed a pile of cows. I mean, when I first came to Bruin, we'd flush like 26 a month. I mean, it was, we were flushing a lot of cows. So, uh, and I enjoy it. It's fun for me figuring out that puzzle, those cows. And, and it's interesting to hear Tim talk. I feel so much better. I thought a lot of what we did was kind of superstition, witchcraft and anecdotal, but there is kind of this art science that goes with it and knowing the cows and knowing how they work and how they respond and, and those things too. So you mentioned the economic side. Um, and, and Tim, I'm not going to put you on the spot because I, I know you represent a company. One of our questions that uh, was submitted by the listeners, they, they want to know the differences between uh, the cost difference between, well, they said ET and AI. That's that's comparing apples to oranges. But uh, I think let's com- compare conventional flushing to IVF. Uh, obviously, obviously, if you're, if you're working with cows that make a lot of embryos or, or make average or better, there is a uh, certainly a cost advantage, and 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 mind you, depending on who you're working with. Okay, uh, we work with Transova. There is an advantage for us producing IVF embryos. <coughs> it's not huge. It's not huge, but I would venture to say, at the end of the day, if if we extrapolated that cost out to a pregnancy, they're going to be pretty close to the same. What have you guys found? Um, I know Vince, you've done done quite a bit of both. The conventional is a little cheaper, but like you said, by the time you you're putting in a lot of extra work, your cows out of um, her normal calving routine, 
And like you said, you brought up a really good point a little while ago about getting a cow hurt. I mean, you start weighing in those factors and the cost. I mean, it could, it costs you more probably to do conventional than IVF. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I put in 30 IVF fresh eggs um, last spring. So get, so, so stay tuned. If those results are, if those results are as I hope they could be, because it looked, they look to be pretty good. I don't, I don't run them through an, an ultrasound at 45 days or anything like that. I just don't have the time. And it's, and it's 5,000 degrees by the time it's time to do that. But, but if it's as it kind of seemed, um, that's almost going to become a practice for me because it was, it, it if the conception rates can be that, you know, 60% sort of a deal and, and IVF conventional flushing is, is great, but there's so much variation and so much witchcraft to it that, that I haven't figured out just being, I don't know if it's cause I'm stupid or what, but sometimes those cows do really good and sometimes they don't. And, and I just get, you have to wait eight weeks and you get zero embryos and then you got to wait another eight weeks. And sometimes that can get frustrating. Sometimes that can get frustrating. Yeah, and I, I would yeah I would add on that. So that when uh, when conventional flushing goes good, I mean yeah, there's you can't make a, a cheaper embryo, and you're you're feeling pretty smart when you know you set up four or five cows and they average twelve fifteen embryos, and you get a great preg rate. But then on the other side of it, you set up those four or five cows and you average two embryos per cow. You know that hurts. I mean that really the the bombs yeah. hurt a lot more in conventional flushing from the the time investment, the the emotional distress, the cost of the drugs, all you know, all, running them cows through the chute, and then showing up. Particularly if you got a bunch of recips set up, and now you're putting in embryos that you didn't want to put in, and you weren't prepared for it. So those are tough days. Those are really tough days. And at least with the IVF, you have kind of a bad run. You can re rack them and make some more embryos in a couple of weeks, and. Uh, you'll have a pretty good idea, you know, based on predictions where you're sitting kind of beforehand and adjust accordingly as far as having some frozens ready to go on that reset herd. So Absolutely. it does kind of just even things out a little bit. I would add uh, the the semen deal. Like yeah. how many of us yeah. have a scope next to That's our chute? And how many yeah. times I've been doing this for almost 30 years now and not 30, 25. And it's like, Everybody asks me, well, do you have a scope that you look at? No, I don't. Actually, I don't have a scope. And I should. We should have a scope if you're going to be conventionally flushing as much as we do. And that's, I I have worked with Transova on a few different cows. And the coolest piece for me is to call up and say, what kind of results have you had with this sire? And they're like, well, mm -hmm. this is what we have. And actually, we have some of that semen on board that you could just buy from us. Or we have a client that might be willing to share it or whatever if you're to call great great resource for that and i'm super excited for trying out some of those technologies this spring for sure um tim tim let's get to some listener questions here um and i'm sorry we're gonna have to kind of go rapid fire through some of these we're running long but sure yep uh garrett maddox this is a great question um he said he's heard some people say uh they they make their donor cows have three to four calves before they start flushing them uh, there's others certainly throughout the industry that are flushing them as virgin heifers or even as two-year-olds. Uh, does it make a difference to you as an embryologist on the number of embryos, the quality of embryos that you're making, uh, depending on the cow's age? 
Yep. I'll let you guys decide for yourselves whether or not that's something that you should do. Um, but as far as if you can, yes. Um, yeah, typically those running age cows, you're, you know, your four to eight year old cows, they're going to be, they're in the prime of the reproductive career. Uh, those cows are in general going to make your, your best donors. Um, and those are the kind of cows that if I could choose, um, those are the ones that, that I would like. When you get into those younger cows, I mean, say you get, uh, you know, a two year old that's 45 days postpartum. She's got a, you know, calf she's trying to raise. She's thin. She's still trying to grow. Um, that's a, that's a challenging animal to, to work with. I mean, not just for an ET practitioner, just, just in general, just to even get her pregnant again. Right. So I don't like to mess with them if I can help it. If I was, I would, um, go IVF and, and I'd get her pregnant first. And, and, and then I'd mess with her that way. Those, those younger cows, because we just priority number one for that cow has got to be for her to keep progressing in her career and get pregnant first, in my opinion. And they just, they're taking all the nutrition they can handle just to take care of themselves. And then the calf, if there's anything left at all, then it would go to reproduction. But a lot of times there just is nothing, nothing else to give. So, so yeah, those, those younger cows can be a challenge both commercially and in IVF. And then if you get into the older deal, I mean, yeah, some guys will wait too long to, to flush their best cows. You know, she'll be 10, 12 years old and they're like, man, let's start working her. And it would have been nice to maybe start a little bit earlier before she was on the, the twilight of her career and, uh, you know, maybe still make some embryos, but not like she could have when she was in her reproductive prime. So if we're trying to, yeah, maximize embryo production, then, then I, I would say, yes, you should wait until they're in that, in that sweet spot. But that being said, I work on a lot of virgin heifers, a lot of young cows. I work on an incredible amount of, uh, older cows as well. So that, that brings, uh, bring us to a, another interesting question here. Is there an age at which you see cows start to decline in their embryo production? There, there is, but it, it it depends on the cow, right? I mean, there are cows that if they're in, in good flesh and they're being managed um, at a good level and just she's, you know, of, of the right genetics um, and she's got a lot of longevity to her. I mean, you can flush a 14, 15 year old cow and get by fine. Um, there's other ones that are bags of bones and they've shut down and there's just not a lot there. So it's, I mean, every cow has her age, I guess, but, but it's, it's all over the place, man. And I'd say, it, like anything, it's probably half environmental and, and, and half her, her genetics, you know? Yeah. So so cows are born with a finite number of eggs, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And, and obviously that's going to vary greatly with cows uh, from cow to cow to cow. And uh, yeah, so, so that could be part of the reason why some of these older cows are uh, really sporadic in their embryo production, I would assume. Yeah, it could be. It's it's rare that, well, I mean, you do get them. Those cows that are maybe towards the end of their career, you go to collect them and they just, they got nothing there. But I mean, but these things are born with such an incredible reserve. Um, and then they're losing, you know, millions to hundreds of thousands of them every, you know, periodically, very, very quickly, you know, just, mm -hmm. just like in humans, you know, as, as a woman approaches menopause, she's, you know, she's got way less eggs than she did at the beginning of her reproductive career. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, certainly a factor, but it's more, I mean, honestly, if I think back to these cows, I just kind of gave it up. Uh, it's there's the, and you can tell it just by look, if they don't pass the visual test, they're probably done. 
if they still look good, we got a great chance at making some embryos on them. I don't know. We've got an old battle axe here that still makes embryos. Oh yeah, they're around. Yeah, I, like I said, I get to work on plenty of them. But uh, <laughs> you know what? Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> but that's uh, that's there was. I did see there was another listener question that ties tied in pretty close to that, where it was, should I wait to do IVF? And um, to that, I would say, you know, absolutely not. It, it's definitely not a, a deal where we worked her conventionally as hard as we could till she quit. So now let's roll into IVF. You can do that, but I wouldn't necessarily wait. I mean, same deal with IVF. Those cows in their reproductive prime are going to be your best IVF candidates as well. Yeah. So um, let's let's take another uh, listener question comment. I, I don't know what in the hell to classify this as. Uh, I assume I assume you know this fellow, Tim, uh, Doctor Nathan Schmidt. I do. Yeah. Nate, Nate, okay. Doctor Nate is a, is a good buddy of mine. Absolutely. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm going to go ahead and read his uh, comment and question. I think you and I both agree that being a bovine repro veterinarian was your calling. You're one of the few, the proud, a machine, as they say, whoever in the hell they are. <laughs> but uh, Nathan, Nathan does have some uh, some good questions here, um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna skip through these. I'm gonna sit through them. But uh, how has the breeding for terminal traits changed the Angus cow's reproductive success, if at all? Sure, and and honestly, I would like to hear your guys' perspective on that too. But I I would say I have found that there are you know, not two different breeds of Angus, but as far as me working on them, it, it, it would almost seem that way as far as your cows that have the kind of traits that uh, allow you to easily make embryos and, and have you know, high antral follicle counts, which is a great indicator of um, ability to make embryos. And then these cows that just, they just don't have them. They just don't have the maternal aspect to them to, to easily make embryos. And it does seem that there is uh, maybe, a, you know, I don't know, a population of them that are, are very consistently that way, hard to make embryos out of. But w what do you think about that, David? <laughs> you already know what I think. But so um, my background's no, no secret. I bred uh, terminal cattle for many years. And when we made the change here, and it could be dependent on the cow families that we selected to uh, to go to. But we saw a vastly different success rate in our embryo program. I mean, it flipped overnight when we selected for cattle that are more inherently more, and I know this is hard to measure, but inherently more productive, more fertile, more maternal. Our embryo production went up. And, and like I say, it could be very cow family specific because we we do work in one cow family a lot. And that's where our numbers come from is from that one sure. cow family. But it's, yeah, it was a night and day difference. And I know Joe, Joe has gone down this, the same road I have. So has Vince. It is like, it used to be like, like mental warfare when the vet would show up. It's like when we were breeding a different type of cow. I mean, it'd be like, okay, what was the what was the ambient temperature outside? What was the was there a ridge of high pressure that came through? Did a pack of dogs run by the donors? And now it's like making eggs is easy. I mean, and and that's been for the past at least ten, maybe twelve years here. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's sort of like, I mean, 
we all have selection criteria we apply. And if your selection criteria is fertility, you'd have to think that those animals would respond better to activities surrounding fertility. Yeah. Yeah. What about the, like you're talking about on the terminal side of the cow, what about the terminal bulls? Have you seen where they're not fertilizing as well? Or do you see like those eggs might not be quite as sticky? Or does it matter? It's more so cow driven. I, I would say I'm more familiar with the cow side of it. I, I okay. just, I mean, as you know, some bulls work great and some bulls don't work at all. What I couldn't tell you is if a higher proportion of bulls that don't work are, are terminal right. bulls. I just, you know, that's not something that I've looked at, but that'd be, it'd be interesting too, I suppose. Well, I would have never thought it mattered on the cow side, but now that you say that, you know, maybe sure. it matters on both sides. Yeah, but it, that is, you know, some of them bulls, they just don't work you know and, and some of them don't work sorted and you know that's what can be really frustrating for guys is if they have a bull where they did the female is going to be great the male is basically worthless but the, he just doesn't sort and right. it's, it's a challenge yeah so um i i want to hit on a, a couple of other questions from uh, dr schmidt here uh th- this is a a really good question uh, and i don't want us to get too far into the weeds here tim but dr schmidt asked How do you propose we get more young veterinarians and those aspiring to be vets interested in our line of work? And what is our biggest obstacle in doing that? Yeah, you know, Nathan and I have talked about that a lot. Uh, He um, also works for a large IVF company, works for Vitelli, and um, we both would love to hire a bunch more, you know, young veterinarians. Uh, That's one of the big bottlenecks that we have right now is, is we don't have enough um, qualified people to, to get all the work done. And as far as what we can do to get more of them, I, I think the one thing that we can have an impact on is, is all of us that are in the industry, what, you know, even you guys, you know, really anyone that's involved at all, what can we do to offer mentorship and offer some coaching for these young people that might be interested in having more of a, you know, open door policy, if you will, on taking that young kid along with you for the day or, you know, going to these shows and just having conversations. And just trying to, you know, let people know that we're out here and that we exist because it's such a niche deal. I mean, honestly, embryo transfer wasn't even on my radar until really a couple years out of vet school. I just kind of fell into it. You know, I was always very repro focused, but uh, hadn't considered offering it until a client asked about it. And so then I did a little research. So I think we maybe need to do a little bit better on the marketing side of of this as as a viable career for young people that are, you know, still looking for something to do in agriculture, but, uh, it's, it's tough. You know, there's just, it's agriculture is not a a field that a lot of people want to go into unless they were born into it. And there's less and less of us being born into it every year, just the nature of the the size of these farms and ranches. And they're just not nearly as many farm kids as there used to be. We got a lot of listeners. So I'm going to say it, pay your bills. How about that? Pay your bills, breeders, because I'm shocked every time that I go to my embryologist and I got to hear that I'm one of a select group who pays their bills on time. It's about making a living, too. These guys are super competitive. They work hard, hard, long hours. They've got a mountain of bills behind them for their education. They still got families. They still need leisure time. And then you don't pay your stinking bills. If you are a listener and you don't pay your bills, Press pause, go write a check, and send it to your embryologist. <laughs> and then send, send a second check to me. We're, and listen, that's another episode, okay? Send, another, <laughs> send one 
Say one to David just because. Okay, so the most important question. David, what's your Venmo? <laughs> yeah, amen. Uh, the, the most important question Dr. Schmidt asked is, Tim, what is your go-to karaoke song? And I'm sure there's a story behind this. You know, th- th- there is a story that I might, you know, maybe share a little more fully af- after we're done, after we've wrapped. But, Your family's uh, out of the house, okay? You can share. <laughs> right. But all I'll say is, um, you know, like I was touching on, um, AETA being a great organization for uh, anybody that handles any volume of embryos to be involved in. Um, it's great for networking as well. And sometimes you're networking in, in, in places that uh, you wouldn't expect to be. And uh, everybody loves Garth Brooks at the end of the day. <laughs> do, you, do you have friends in low places? I do now. <laughs> Sounds like you do. <laughs> Sounds like Tim was at Applebee's on karaoke. That's what it sounds like. So, so we've got we've got a question from Brent Vieselmar, which is a friend of our program, and he's in Colorado, and we all look forward to going and seeing him next week. Um, so he he asked a question about cow. You know, he has a couple cows every every thirty or forty he runs through. They come through. The ET tech says. You know what? She's cystic. Um, what causes that? What what's what's that from? Sure. So when you're talking about cysts, you know, like he mentioned, it can be very frustrating. Um, a lot of times, it's uh, nutritionally related, one way or another, and it can be very um, unrewarding to try to chase down or figure out, particularly if it's in low numbers. You know, say when I was in dairy practice, uh, if you got into palpating some of these cows, fifty days or less postpartum. A bunch of them were cystic. Um, they're in a negative energy balance. They're just not quite ready to fire off yet. But then as they got 70, 80 days postpartum, they just resolved themselves. But if, if I just get a couple, um, I'm not too worried about it. Usually, if we're talking about cows that were set up for transfer, um, it would be a cow that showed a heat. And that's what people get frustrated right by. She had a great heat, Doc. Why are you kicking her out? And uh, so she ovulated. She had her heat. And then for whatever reason, when she did, instead of turning into a nice meaty CL that I can palpate and say, yes, this cow has a great chance at uh, maintaining a pregnancy, it was very soft and fluid filled and there just wasn't enough meat to that structure so that when I put pressure on it, it just popped in my hand. And so that's when I got to kick those cows out because I just, they didn't have enough CL tissue to produce enough progesterone for me to feel like that embryo's got a chance at, at sticking. And that being said, there's everybody's a little different. Some techs are a lot pickier than others. You know, some guys, if they feel a really large, you know, CL that's very fluid filled, they'll just kick them out. Some guys ultrasound them, some don't. Um, I tend to be a little bit more aggressive on what kind of a recip I'll put an embryo into. Um, if I feel it and it feels like there's enough there, then I'll go ahead and put an embryo in it. So I, I really do try to, particularly if the cow looks like she's in good shape. Now, if she's a body conditioner too skinnier than the rest of them, and she looks like she's not right, um, I was looking for an excuse to kick her out anyway because I didn't think she was a very good reset. But uh, if they look good and they look like they match their cohorts, then, then I'll typically give them a chance. So it's just, again, um, probably just a cost of doing business. You set up these cows um, for an embryo, you're, you're going to have a small proportion of them that are, going to go ahead and throw a cyst on you. But it's not something that's, and particularly if it if it explodes in your hand, she's fine. She's reset. Some of those, you know, you can give them a shot of GnRH or you could reset them up on a cedar um, if you're going to do an X-Go in the near future and they'll be just fine on that next setup. So it typically 
isn't a chronic condition that's going to affect them moving forward. It's more of a one-off when you're talking recips set up for transfer day. Some of these might be around a little bit all over the board, but we got to get to them. Tim, um, our friend Matt Thompson in Idaho is thinking about using some boss syndicates cross recips. How important is the genetic complexion of your recip cows? And would you prescribe different protocols accordingly based upon their genetic contributions? Complexion, sorry, genetic complexion. Yeah. If we're talking about getting into some eared cattle, setting those up for recips, you know, depending on the region, might be a very common thing to do. Then in that case, I would work with your technician on what they think the best protocol is going to be to set them up for an embryo because they're going to have a personal preference. They're going to know those cattle as well as anybody. Um, but yeah, there's there's different protocols. And that's where I'd encourage anybody to go to uh, Google the Beef Reproduction Task Force. And they have all those protocols for beef heifers, beef cattle, boss indicus, boss taurus, um, all of the most up-to-date proper protocols that you would want to incorporate for AI or ET. And they're all laid out there in a very straightforward manner. And if, if they make the fact sheet from that, from that um, task force, it, it's, a, it's a good protocol. It's got a lot of research behind it. So I, I kind of lean on that if I'm looking at maybe getting into something a little more exotic to set up for AI or ET. Our our friend Seth Christensen from uh, Idaho had a few questions. What is the largest number of oocytes you've seen produced by a donor in a single aspiration? And then what would average be? Sure. So, again, it depends a lot on production cycle of the cow, breed of the cow. But uh, the most that I've personally collected is, uh, I think, like 185 oocytes that I got off of a, off of a Charlet cow. And, uh, she made, I, I mean, I think she made close to 70 embryos. He split her a bunch of different ways and, wow. uh, yeah, made a pile of embryos. But, so she was an outlier for sure. Uh, I mean, yeah, like I said earlier, mature beef cow, 25 oocytes would be a very you know good expectation for, for an average. In my experience, you get down to virgin heifers. If they hit 20, you're, you're very excited. You know, I'd think 15, 17, probably be more like it. Um, Dairy cattle are going to be a lot, you know, a little lower than that. You get into the eared cattle, they're they seem to be a, a, quite a bit more prolific. You know, like the Brangus, it, you know, they'll they'll make a lot of oocytes and, and, and a lot of embryos. They seem to have pretty high follicle counts. You know, again, Herefords, they uh, those cows typically can be a little bit higher than the Angus. Um, so it just totally depends on what kind of cow we're talking about. What's the largest number of transferable embryos you've seen a single donor produce? Yeah, I mean, I think it would be that one with it that had about that 70, but not me personally, but have uh, have some colleagues that have flushed cows that have, you know, been in that 50, 60 range and of transferable embryos. So th they're out there, but I mean, really, if your cow hits double digit embryos, that's, that's a good day in my opinion. That's, um, you know, some of these guys will conventionally flush a Simmental and then she'll make 40 embryos and then you go, well, what do I even want to do with all these? You know, do I even like the cow enough to want to put 40 embryos in? Right. So, you know, really, you know, if, if you're hitting 10, I think that's a, a, a nice number, nice number to be at. So, so we beat the ET IVF deal um, nine ways from Sunday here, but there was one question that came in from uh, Cody Pig. And, and by the way, listeners out there, I'm sorry if we're not going to get to your questions. Uh, Tim is, is nice enough to uh, spend some time with us this evening, but uh, I know he's on the road a lot. And so we're, we're going to take as little time as we can away from his family. But there was one question that I think is uh, extremely important to ask you, and it's, it's outside of the uh, ET world. 
Uh, and it comes from Cody Pig, uh, again, one of Vince's neighbors. And this is a question that we've, we've been hearing a lot about, whether you're in the southeast, the southern plains where uh, Corbin is, or up in Montana here. Why are we hearing of more open cows this year, Tim? Yeah, uh, I can only speak to kind of what I've seen in, in uh, my experiences up here in, in Eastern Montana specifically. And it just seemed like it was a perfect storm of, we had a really wet spring, looked like things were going to be really, really good. Looked like we we're going to have a great grass year. And, uh, the grass grew very fast and it got really washy, you know, it didn't necessarily have a lot of nutrients to it. And then it just dried out, you know, then things just quit. And so I, the grass just, it wasn't a normal grass year for us. And it just didn't, I don't think had the, had the nutrients that it, that it needed to. And then we had a tremendous amount of grasshoppers, which sucked all the goody out of everything that was around. Um, and they came on hot and thick, you know, like we'd never seen, honestly. And we've been in bad grasshopper years for about like three years now, but they were as bad as they've been. So that affected us. And because it was so wet earlier in the year, we had stable flies like we've never seen as well. I mean, and it was like that from Montana all the way into Eastern North and South Dakota, I'd be driving down the road, you know, all transfer season and just see cows bunched everywhere, just fighting flies. And you just couldn't get rid of them everywhere. And so I think that had an impact on breed ups as well. And, uh, you, you think about how expensive feed was last year and what guys were feeding and maybe not all of it was great. A lot of these cows calved in tough condition and then they never had a chance to catch up. And so there was just a, a ton of different factors that really all led up to wrecks. I mean, that, my brother's an auctioneer, uh, Mile City, Belfouche, Billings, kind of that area. And he just said, you just wouldn't believe just potloads of these cows hitting the sale barn every week. It's just incredible um, how many open cows we have over a very wide area this fall. And I, I, I feel it's going to have to impact the cow herd numbers for next year. Because it's it's unbelievable. It it most certainly will. And so, uh, Tim, I don't know if you and I visited on this, um, but but I've got uh, uh, some good friends and customers up on the High Line here in Montana, uh, just south of the Canadian border. Uh, they were relating to me some of the the horror stories coming out of that country this fall at preg check time. Uh, herds that were fifty uh, percent pregnant, and I mean good herds of cattle. Sure. Uh, the, the, these these are not folks that are working in town. I mean, these are folks that, that rely on cattle to pay the bills, and and they're talking about fifty percent uh, preg rates on these cows. And and fortunately, this good friend and customer, yeah, they they didn't skip on their feed last winter. You know, they they fed just like they always would, uh, bit the bullet, and you know, uh, paid the money for the feed regardless of what it cost and, and, and kept their cows right where they normally would have them. And, and so they related that they thought a lot of their neighbors, they were feeding some of those uh, really expensive hay or marginal hay. And they thought it was more due to that, that winter feed when those cows were still, you know, uh, late stage gestation right into calving. Um, and, and early postpartum, they, they were thinking that a lot of the problems were stemming from that. 
Sure. Yeah. No, I like, like I mentioned with, uh, yeah, the kinds of feeds that people had access to, right. Cause nobody had any feed. People were feeding stuff they'd never fed before bought from who knows where. And, uh, it just different. There was just a lot of different feed stuffs going into cattle and we were in a very unique set of circumstances. And so I don't think it was any one thing. It was just a combination of things It just made for, yeah, tough year for a lot of people, unfortunately, because, yeah, like you say, most of these people had these wrecks. This is what they do for a living. You know, it, it is not a hobby. And you send 150, 200 open cows to town, tough to recover from. Yeah, it is. It is. So, uh, Corbin, you've, you've gone through it. I mean, you've had a couple of years of drought there in uh, southeastern Oklahoma. It's it's been a tra- it's been very hard. But what I'm going to tell everyone listening to this podcast is uh, God didn't make us. God didn't make us weak. Not this industry. <laughs> You're tough. You've got this. Keep going. Yeah, I'll tell that to the banker. <laughs> yeah, banker. <laughs> hey, you one thing about more open cows this year? That banker got paid this time. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He- <laughs> we'll worry about that next year. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, well, folks, I'm I'm gonna. I'm so disappointed because we we've got one of the great experts on uh, reproduction here with us, but uh, we've used up all of our time this evening. And 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 thank you, listeners, for submitting so many good questions. So what what I uh, endeavor to do in the coming podcast? Now we won't have Tim on, unfortunately. So uh, rather than having one expert, you're going to have four. I don't know what you would call us, but we're going to give our opinions. I on have some an of those questions. <laughs> we all have <laughs> opinions. That's a problem. <laughs> but there's so many good questions here regarding uh, sync protocols. Uh, we're we're going to share with you what's worked for us, what hasn't, and then there's some stuff here. I don't know who in the hell we're going to find to answer these questions about aflatoxins <laughs> and mycotoxins. But uh, yeah, folks, folks, this uh, this reproduction. Uh, topic is one that will keep us entertained for many many episodes and and uh, tim thank you my friend uh certainly a pleasure getting to know you over the last couple of years uh we look forward to working with you quite a bit in the, in the future um i'm going to give a shameless plug here whether you want it or not we work with transova genetics you know uh, and we've worked with a lot of good folks in this embryo transfer field but uh, uh Transova stays on the cutting edge. They're consistent. They're predictable. They're fair. And uh, I would urge you, uh, if you're interested in uh, uh, specifically IVF or or even conventional embryo transfer, reach out to uh, Transova there at their uh, headquarters in Sioux Center, Iowa. They'll set you up with uh, an expert just like Tim. May, may even be Tim. Tim's all over the place. I mean, Tim's here at uh, Northwest Montana one day, and then he's in Georgia the next. So uh, if you're out there on the road, you might run into Tim. But, uh, Tim, thank you so much for your time. We certainly appreciate it. Yeah, no, I appreciate the kind words, David. Um, enjoyed being on. Just a little disappointed that Vince didn't say anything inappropriate. Um, <laughs> I always try to not say anything inappropriate. Hopefully uh, stimulated some some good conversations, and I just encourage everybody to yeah reach out to your local ET practitioner, whoever you work with, or maybe somebody you'd like to develop a relationship with, and don't be afraid to uh, challenge them. Or you know, there's no stupid questions. Um, we're we're all open to feedback, and 
if you want to switch up how you're doing things or if you have something about your program that isn't fitting and not working, um, try to come to a solution together. Um, we're, we're all open to, to dialogue. So just encourage, hopefully, like I said, we can yeah, have some good conversations that are stimulated by what we talked about today. So enjoy the time and enjoy getting to know you guys a little bit and appreciate it. Well, thank you, Tim. And thank you for coming on. Okay, time out. Time out. Okay, so we're trying to rush Tim out of here. We missed one of the most important pieces to all of IVF ET. That's the recip. David, it's your fault because you told Corbin and I not to interrupt at the beginning in the ground rules. But let's get to the most important part. Tim's got five minutes. He's got to get back to his family. Yeah, Tim, tell us about uh, setting ourselves up uh, for uh, embryo transfer day, specifically with the recips. Sure. So, um, with yeah, probably the most important thing that's going to set you up for success on whether or not you're going to generate pregnancies off of all that hard work you did, off all those expensive bills that you uh, paid to your ET practitioner um, on making them embryos, is how well you manage those recips. And I would talk a little bit about, I guess, what I like to see in the recips, and that's um, one that you've you've had them for a little while. If I'm pulling the sale barn back tag off of the cow. I was just fixing to ask you about sale barn. That <laughs> is one of my, probably my biggest pet peeve. And I'm ashamed at how often I've had to do it. Or when the the brand is just peeling or hasn't even peeled yet. And, uh, or when we're branding, you know, you, you get that too. So yeah, but to you, if they're blocked, they brand easier, Tim. <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> this you, is true. you've got nowhere. You got nowhere to be, right? So, yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> let's go. And you want to talk about managing stress? You know, so I, I'm kind of jumping around here, but that's also one of the most overlooked things when we're handling these recips is stress management. I mean, you can have success in, with with any protocol, but if those those cattle are stressed out, they don't want to become pregnant, and so. I would highly recommend low stress handling techniques and usually sale barn cattle, they don't necessarily respond to that. So it's, I mean, you got these cows that are, you don't know where they came from. You're like, they're fresh to the place. We just pop the cedar in them. We set them up. We're going to go. And then you get the other treat of, uh, you going in there. And you're like, oh yeah. She's, she's seven months bred. She's about to cat, <laughs> you know? I'm I'm pulling out, you know, a pieces of an aborted fetus because half of these things were pregnant because they pulled the bull the day that they preg checked and then you bought them four months after that. Yeah. So those, that, that's what not to do, right? But unfortunately, we, we, we see a fair bit of that too. But so I like to see cows that you've had your hands on for a few months. You've went through them. You've sorted them for temperament, you know, disposition. They're of good confirmation. They look like a cow that's going to raise you a, a nice calf, right? Because that also kills me when you got a cow that comes through the chute and she doesn't look like she could raise a, you know, a 400 pound calf. And you're going to put your best genetics into that cow and expect her to raise a good calf. Or you hear it at a sale. Well, you know, this, this cow, he's got a lot of genetics behind him, but he just, he just wasn't on a very good reset. He's a great cat. He just doesn't look like it because he, he wasn't on a very good reset. It's like, well, he is, he is what he is. You know, it doesn't matter. So that's, let's, let's go ahead and select a recip that we think has an excellent chance of, of raising you one, one of your best cats. Have it on the place for a while, get it acclimated. And, um, and then we can get into, you know, and have them at kind of that running age, right? You know, I, I don't like putting embryos 
into two-year-old uh, cows a lot for the reasons that we talked about earlier. It's just they're their own animal. They take a lot of extra management. It can be done. Um, have had great success doing it, but but in general, like to get into a little bit older, you know, a mature running age cow is going to make your best reset. I also prefer um, if you can swing it, having uh, pairs, you know, ha- having a wet cow. She's, you know, say 70 to 90 days postpartum. She's got a calf inside. She's ready to go. All, you know, she's a fertile cow. She's raising that calf. She's firing on all cylinders. She's ready to receive an embryo. And those kind of cows can be a little bit on the thin side. I do see a lot of that, you know, especially later in the year when, when these cows are out on grass and they're milking their hearts out. And that's okay as long as they're on the game. You know, if I got a thin cow that is on the game and hitting things right and she's being managed appropriately, we can put embryos into those cows and we can get by really, really well. Um, and if I'm not going to have a cow that's got a calf inside, hopefully it's a younger cow that, you know, she, she came up open because there was a lot of selection pressure on her, maybe short exposure to a bull. And then she got to spend, she got pick checked open in the fall, got to spend all winter getting shaped up, getting fed right through. And uh, then she's going to hit spring. She's in good shape. She's not too fat, but again, she's cycling well and she's ready to receive an embryo. Now, if we have a cow that has had two calves in the last four or five years and she's fat as a pig, you know, that's not going to make your ideal reset. So, and I know people want to maximize the cattle that they have access to. They don't want to spend a lot of money on a resip, but open resips cost you way more than just sourcing good cattle to put your embryos in. And I'd like to see resips that are managed about as well as, as the registered cows are managed. You know, that those are the, the programs that most consistently have success. And if you can do that, um, the rest of it is just gravy as far as, you know, I like the seven and seven, 14 day cedar protocol that most consistently gives me the best results. I mean, I'll beat down the door about how Absolutely. I prefer that protocol just because of the percentage of cows that come into heat off of it relative to some other protocols. And then I want to, I also, I want to put my embryos into cows that show to heat. You know, I certainly have places where we do, you know, the GNRH cows or some places don't even heat detect. But if you're asking my preference, I want a cow that showed a strong heat. And the 7 and 7 gives that for me. What about heifers for recips? Don't care for them. <laughs> I <laughs> guess. I just, they, again, I don't really know what they are necessarily. I don't know what kind of calf they're going to raise. Um, putting sexed female embryos into them, I'm, I'm a little more open to that, I guess. You know, have, have, I guess you guys do that and, and get by okay. Dairy heifers? They're great. They're, they're more fertile than dairy cows, right? So in that instance, I'm a big fan. But on the beef side, I still like that running H cow, you know. But, it, oh, and another thing I want to say on the, that 7 and 7, it's my preference. But I also have herds that have tried it, and they went back to the 7-day. But they were the herds that were managing, we'll say, in the top 5 or 10%. And so they didn't see a benefit of switching over to that 7 and 7 because they're, they're already at the top. And um, for them, there was no point. But for most people, there, there is a benefit. And particularly younger cows that are on the thin side, they can benefit from a little bit longer exposure to progesterone that, that, that's in that cedar. So that's where, you, where, it, where it's a nice little boost for you. But any protocol, 5, 7, 14 day can be successful if, if you manage those, those cattle appropriately. Yeah. And, and when you say management, I mean, that's a great mineral program. 
uh, rising plane of nutrition, the pre-breeding shots given well, well ahead, what, 30 days plus ahead of six, six weeks plus. Yep. Yeah. There's more yeah. research coming out on that. Even six weeks, it'd be even better. 30 days might not even be enough if they've never seen it before. So yeah, yeah. again, if you're sourcing those recips, have them, you know, ahead of, ahead of time enough that you're able to get those pre-breeding shots into them if they're of unknown origin to, yeah, have exactly all the things you mentioned. Critical. Good new good mineral program, absolutely critical. Good, Tim. Thank you once again. <laughs> we we certainly appreciate you uh, joining us this evening, and and we want to uh, certainly extend an invitation for you to come back anytime. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so uh, uh, when your schedule permits, we want to have you back, and uh, we'll talk more all things repro with Dr. Tim Gibbs. No, love to. Thanks again. So Tim, we're going to test your knowledge here. We're going to close out this episode. What do we tell our listeners? Well, I never make it to the end, David. I don't know. So that's that's, that's two episodes in a row. (laughs) Two episodes in a row. Our dang guest has failed us. Uh, Myla has just joined us. Myla is uh, Corbin's daughter. I wonder if Myla knows. No, <laughs> she's, she's shaking her head. No, I'll bet she. I'll bet she knows what her daddy called that bull that got stuck between the two uh, round bales. So. <laughs> oh, okay, so since Joe has been absent for so long with Jovid, maybe you'll remember what. What do we tell our listeners? Wash your hands. Don't lick nor doorknobs, and keep it underground. All right. (laughs) See you folks in Denver. This episode of Angus Underground was brought to you in part by Montana Ranch, the source for balanced trade Angus, which are different by design. If you love this episode, head over to where you listen to podcasts to subscribe, rate, and review. Also, check us out on social media where you can interact with us and to suggest subjects that you'd like us to cover on upcoming episodes.